is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Two major decisions affecting agriculture in Victoria are being made in the courts today. One around the Environment Minister and Climate Minister's responsibilities around large-scale power lines in Victoria. That was challenged. We will give you uh, that result shortly on the program. Another on whether dissatisfied members of the Victorian Farmers Federation have any right to call for a spill of the leadership of the organisation. That challenge is being handed down in court as we speak as well. We'll bring you those results on the program, but look, if courtrooms aren't your think thing, maybe you want to get into producing what sounds like a pretty tasty kind of food, right? Almost slightly sweet flavour characteristic. It's actually, believe it or not, I've smoked a lot of things in Pinot Noir battles and the, there is some slight characteristics. It has earthy notes, um, but yeah, it's slightly sweet, but still delicate, with little hints of earthy kind of, and I do want to say a little acidic, but in a in a pleasant way. Oh, I don't know what he's talking about, but it sounds brilliant, and we're going to learn about it together on the program this afternoon. Right now, though, let's get some rural news. Georgie Carroll's got the rural news for you today. Good afternoon, Georgie. G'day, Was. Livestock are now dying in far north Queensland due to exposure to wet, windy and cold weather following the huge rain associated with Cyclone Jasper. Joy Marriott runs cattle at Mountain View Station, about 80 kilometres southwest of Cooktown. She says that flooding and current weather conditions are really testing the whole community. Yeah, we're pretty resigned now. We've um, starting to lose cattle from the exposure and yeah, yesterday was sort of if it had a cleared up, we might have pulled through. But yeah, the people are losing stuff. And the, when you see, you know, unprecedented amounts of native animals just dying from the exposure, you know, there's dead possums falling out of trees and and the wallabies and the big old eastern greys. And yeah, it just makes you sad. Approximately 50 horses are now taking refuge at the Cairns showgrounds after being flooded out or swept out of their paddocks by rising water. Tennille Stiles had just moved back to Cairns with her 33-year-old horse, Bobby, only for the adjustment property that three horses were sharing inland from the northern beaches became terribly flooded. Didn't think he would be going through uh, crocodile-infested floodwaters. He um, got swept away in the floodwaters and it pushed him down towards the go-kart track on the highway, um, which is basically diagonally over from where he was gisted. And he washed up and walked across to the local feed shop, which um, was high on the hill there, and tried to basically bust their door down (laughs) to get to the feed inside because he was starving. Um, he is, he's got a small cut um, on his left rear leg. He, he has a lot of mucus coming out of his nose, so we're, we're thinking that he's probably swallowed quite a bit of flood water. A rain cell that fell across the far west of New South Wales has saved one local grazing family from fully destocking their station. 51 millimetres of rain fell on Tuesday at Alandi Station, 240 kilometres northeast of Broken Hill. Georgina Luckcraft said that she had just made the heartbreaking decision to destock, and the first rain in a year has saved their business. 
definitely changed things, apart from completely ruining shearing, which has been a bit of a schmozzle anyway, which we don't care about. We're happy to ruin <laughs> ruin whatever we need to if that means that much rain. We had all our cattle were heading off early in the new year. Yeah, everything was coming off. We've got rid of, uh, we had adjustment on, we have had on for a couple of several years now and it's, yeah, it's just gone backwards so, so quickly in the last couple of months and everything has gone off and all of our own stuff was heading off as well. So yeah, from, I don't know, one day booking trucks and pretty much de-stocking, waiting for hay trucks to come in so that we could wait and get them strong enough to truck out and now they'll all be staying home. So yeah, it's absolutely life-changing. From flood and rain to fires... As fire conditions ease for the Duck Creek Fire in the Piliga State Forest near Narrabri, the impacts to farmers is yet to be tallied. While livestock losses remain unknown, honey producers who utilise the Piliga Forest now need to find new areas for their bees. Steve Fuller, the president of the Crop Pollination Association of Australia, says while the majority of hives were moved out of the Piliga, there will be impact to pollination resources. I'm of the understanding some bees have perished in the fires, just too risky to go in and get them out before um, before well, it was safe. But uh, most of the bees have been removed. Like What I've been told is only about 200 to 300 hives. That fire out there at the moment is burning the tops of the trees, so it's destroying everything. And... That could mean that that forest now is no good for beekeeping or anything else for up to 10 years, maybe even longer. A couple from Western Australia's Midwest has been fined a total of $3,000 for their role in cattle rustling operations in 2021. Clinton and Emma Spong both pleaded guilty in Perth's district court to one count each of fraud involving producing false invoices for the transport of stolen cattle. The pair owned the Moorah-based livestock trucking company Spong Hall. The couple pleaded guilty to doctoring invoices for the Gascoigne pastoralist Richard Arends and Elizabeth III. The Spongs, Third, and Arends, as well as four others, were charged in 2021 as part of the Rural Crime Squad Operations Topography, which investigated the theft of hundreds of cattle in the state's north. It has been reported the stolen cattle could have been worth about $800,000. Clinton Spong was ordered to do 50 hours community service and Emma Spong 40 hours over the next 10 months. And staying in WA, this year cattle export numbers from WA's north were well down on average, mainly due to a lack of demand from Indonesia. Broomport manager Mal Gower says that the last ship sailed later than usual, but all mustering, trucking and exporting has now finished for the year. Typically we uh, aim for th- around 30 vessels, um, so we ended up with 24, so we've only hit the 62,000 mark, so we're well shy of our normal 100,000 for the uh, for the season. And was that's it for Rural News. Thanks, Georgie. Georgie Carroll there with Rural News. You can send a text to the country at 0467 842 722. We'd love to hear from you. I know there's been a little bit of rain about in parts as well, so if you do have a figure, you can always send that too as well. We're going to spend a bit of time in and out of courtrooms now on the Country Hour and throughout the program today, but plenty of other stuff to talk about as well. Hearing from a young and quite amazing sounding manager of a grain corp silo in Western Victoria too. All of that coming up for you and more, but let's start in that courtroom with the Victorian Supreme Court ruling against a community group fighting major transmission line projects in Western Victoria today. In May, 
this year, a long time ago, Murrable and Central Highlands Power Alliance went to the Supreme Court arguing an order made by Energy Minister Lily D'Ambrosio to fast-track the Western Renewables Link was invalid. Now, the Western Renewables Link is the large-scale power line project to connect wind farms to the national energy grid and customers in Melbourne. Watching on these court proceedings, it was our reporter, Laura Mays, who can join you on the Country Hour now. Welcome back to the Country Hour, Laura. G'day, how are you going, Was? Yeah, can you take us into to court today and explain what happened? Yeah, uh, I can do that to the best of my ability. So obviously this morning, as you said, so the, the Victorian Supreme Court ruled against the Morable and Central Highlands Power Alliance. So they originally took the uh, took the case to the Supreme Court arguing uh, that the uh, minister acted without with improper purpose uh, when uh, she fast-tracked uh, the orders uh, for the VNI Western and the Morable, uh sorry, for the uh, Western Renewables link. Um, so this morning that was the, uh, the, the order that was made uh, and as Judge Michael McDonald said this morning, they, uh, the Alliance did actually have a standing to bring the proceeding to court, but he did conclude uh, that the Alliance didn't have uh, a grounds to, uh, rejected the grounds, sorry, uh, in which the minister was challenged. So that application was ultimately dismissed this morning. So, so the the justice ruling that that there was reason to hear the case, but ultimately siding with the government. Yes, that's correct. That is what happened. So, uh, in terms of the the background for this case, can can you just tell us a little bit about the these power line projects and I suppose the opposition to it and what this group was was fighting the minister on in this case. Yeah, it is quite technical, but uh, you know, for people who might not be aware, um, they they as as you said, they are those transmission projects. For example, the WRL project is the 190 kilometer overhead high voltage electricity transmission line, uh, and that goes through the west of Victoria. And as you said, that's to distribute the renewable energy generated um, in the west to the city. Uh, and and obviously, you know, there is going to be an instance where there's going to be parcels of land that are going to you know. That that project is going to need to go through, uh, and so there's over three thousand members in uh, the Morable and Central Highlands Power Alliance. Uh, they took um, that order, that fast tracking uh, order that was made by Lily Minister Lily D'Ambrosio uh, to the courts in May this year. Um, and they have obviously been calling for some time now for an investigation of alternate options for that energy project. Uh, so when the minister fast-tracked the order, the order that she made uh, was to allow the WRL and the VNI West uh, to, to, to move forward quickly without having to redo a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, as she, at the time uh, when this was originally being reported, called the project crucial uh, as the country is seeking alternative alternative energy generation to get to the city. Uh, so that is the background behind those projects. And ultimately, with the court siding with the minister, what, what comes next for this case? Is there still more to be heard? That's that's it for the case itself. Uh, the only thing this morning that kind of uh, uh, was uh, brought forward is that the uh, alliance was ordered to pay the costs as they brought it forward against the minister and they ultimately lost out. However, there is opportunity and, and room for them to come back to court tomorrow morning to, to fight that. Uh, whether or not that will happen uh, is unclear at this stage. It, it only concluded, say, an hour or so ago. So my understanding is the uh, the more 
Honourable Alliance is uh, kind of going through with their lawyers and working out what happens next on that one. So as it stands, not only have the uh, Moorable and Central Highlands Power Alliance lost their case uh, against the minister, but costs have been awarded for, for, for them to pay the costs of the minister as it stands. As it stands, yes. And and to be clear, that is uh, a fairly you know common procedure when you do level uh, level something like this in courts, uh, and you do ultimately uh, you know not get awarded it. Um, so that is a pretty standard procedure. But there is the opportunity for them to fight that. So we'll guess we'll just have to watch watch the space. Laura May is grateful for your time. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Was. Laura May is our reporter who has been watching on in the Victorian Supreme Court today, which has ruled against the community group fighting major transmission projects in Western Victoria. The Murrable and Central Highlands Power Alliance went to the Supreme Court arguing an order from Energy Minister, as you've just heard, Lily D'Ambrosio, to fast track the Western Renewables link was invalid, but the court has found in favour of the minister. Listening into that is Catherine Myers, who is... Uh, the vice president of the VFF Horticulture Group, a potato grower from Torello, north of Ballarat, been heavily involved with the legal case and her property, obviously, in the corridor of the Western Renewables Link. Catherine Myers, welcome back to the country. Yeah, thanks, Was. Was this expected? Oh, look, it was always going to be 50-50. It's never easy taking the government to court, um, but it's a, it's a, it's a pretty, pretty serious blow before Christmas. It's a big loss in terms of the opposition to the project overall, not only just his case, I would imagine. Yeah, it is. It's a really tough one. So just to add on to what Laura said, back in um, late last year, we challenged the Australian Energy Regulator's decision that um, the Australian Energy Regulator didn't have to follow the national energy rule. Uh, national energy rules in this particular case. So with WRL and V&I West, they determined that they didn't need to follow the national energy rules and we were challenging that in court and then these ministerial orders came out to effectively stop that court challenge. So what they've done here is, is they've kind of said that government departments don't need to follow the, the rules anymore um, and if they get caught out not following the rules, a minister can just make an order and sort of make it go away. So in terms of the, the greater picture uh, with the court siding with the minister, what does this mean for, for groups and groups that you're involved with that are in opposition to how these power line projects are being rolled out in regional Victoria? Yeah, so this decision today, it was only 14 minutes in court, but um, there's a multi-hundred page document that's come with it, which our legal team and some very wonderful volunteers are reading through at the moment and working through. So it's going to take us a while to digest that and find out what's going on. But um, yeah, look, it is a really serious blow and it's a really serious degradation of property rights, I think, really. It really goes to show that government departments don't really need to follow the rules anymore. And that's a fairly alarming situation. A lot of money would have been spent on this case as well. Do you have an idea of how much has been spent so far? A lot of money. A lot of money. I don't know the final figure, but it was well, well, well over half a million dollars. And that's all come out of community donations, um, right from up near Murrabit, right down to the edges of Melbourne. So the full line of both V&I West and WRL, because this court challenge related to both of those two projects. So well over half a million dollars are now costs, as it stands, awarded to the minister as well. So so the group could be paying um, for, for the legal defence that ultimately beat you in court. Um, I'd imagine that starts to add up rather quickly. That's, that hurts. 
yeah, that's pretty tough for a very small community group. So given it was a long shot, given you thought it was 50-50, given the money involved, why do this? Why take something like this to court when you're not assured of winning and, in fact, you've lost? Because it's so wrong. Was What's happening is it's really appalling. It's really difficult that... The issue is just too big to, to lay down and accept it. We we know that our agricultural land is under threat here. This this line runs through about 40% of potato farms in this district. It really follows right through that potato growing area and there's that, that can't be replaced anywhere else. We need to do everything that we can to maintain our agricultural land that we've got and we need to... It's just a matter of principle that we try and ensure the government follows the law. That's that's the point of a government, I would have thought. And, um, yeah, we were hoping that this would make that happen. Well, the law has decided in favour of the government. Yeah, it has. <laughs> Is this it in terms of the fight against the Western Renewables Project uh, that you've been involved in for years now? Look, the door's always open. We will always sit down and talk to the Minister, both with the Rural and Central Highlands Power Alliance and also with the VFF. Um, we certainly want to work with VicGrid, who are starting to undertake some work around strategic land use and the important agricultural land to protect with the renewable energy zone development into the future. Um, I've pushed very, very hard to make sure these two projects are included in that process as well, but we're not having a lot of luck with that at the moment. So we'll certainly keep trying to work to improve energy policy. Um, on the ground, I think this is really tough. This decision sort of shows that the government doesn't have to follow the law and my concern is that that will give landholders the feeling that they don't either. Does uh, Are there any further legal avenues open to, to the groups involved in this case or is this it? That's all under review at the moment. So they'll be reading through the judgment um, at the moment and seeing where that goes. And hopefully everyone involved is going to take a few weeks off and try and enjoy their families for Christmas. Um, and we'll come back to it in January and see, see what, what's what. Catherine Myers, grateful for your time as well. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Liz. Torello Potato Grower, north of Ballarat there, Vice President of the VFF's Horticulture Group, has been heavily involved with this legal case. Her properties in the corridor of the Western Renewables linked. Catherine Myers speaking to you about the reaction to that judgment there in court today, as we told you earlier, with the court deciding in favour of the government against the Marable and Central Highlands Power Alliance uh, over the actions made by Energy Minister Lily D'Ambrosio to fast-track the Western Renewables Link and other renewables projects in Victoria. You're listening to The Country Aries 24 past 12. Warwick along with you. Let's move away from the courtroom for just a moment. We'll be back there in a minute. Major case with the Victorian Farmers Federation has just been handed down as well. I've got details on that coming up for you. But let's talk some food now. They've been loved by First Nations and Pacific communities for generations. And now cockles are finding popularity across Victoria. But that popularity is having an effect on populations around Gippsland's corner inlet. Now the Victorian Fisheries Authority has introduced bag limits for recreational fishers to ensure cockles communities uh, can continue to thrive. Fiona Broom got the details from Fisheries CEO Travis Dowling. 
We're reducing the current bag limit of five litres down to two litres for cockles around Corner Inlet, which is consistent with the Corner Inlet management plan, which we released in 2022. And what's the reason for that reduction? Look, what we've identified is that uh, cockles can be overfished. And what we want to do is we want to share the resource as much as possible with families, mums and dads and our, our commercial and recreational fishery. And where we've got high levels of people really harvesting cockles, that can lead to short-term depletion in those spaces. So we'd prefer that people can go and grab a couple of litres, go home and cook them up because they are a delicious delicacy, rather than turn up at a spot and note there's no cockles available at those spots. Has it been the case that cockles have been overfished in that corner inlet area or are there some other pressures that, are, that the cockles are experiencing there? Well, what we're seeing is we're seeing with a range of uh, marine species across Victoria and around corner inlet and elsewhere that people are really starting to appreciate and understand that um, some of the things that they mightn't historically have eaten are really good food. So we're seeing that with pippies, we're seeing it with cockles, people are getting into different seaweeds. And what we're trying to do is just stay ahead of the game a little bit and make sure that we've got a great resource that's available for people to eat. And what actually is a cockle? What do they look like? <laughs> is, it, is it possible to mistake them for, for something else? Um, well, not really. They're sort of like, um, they're, well, they're in a shell and they don't look like a pipia or a mussel. They're more of a um, more of a screw type shell. And, and look, they've been harvested for thousands of years by um, in, you know, Indigenous Australians. And more recently, we've got people understanding that they're a real delicacy and they're fantastic in marinaras or another seafood or just cooked as they are. So they're wonderful. And it's, I suppose, another feather in the cap of Corner Inlet, which is an incredible ecosystem and supports some beautiful fish like King George Whiting and Flathead and Snapper. And we've also got wonderful pippy and cockle populations there. So we encourage people to go and have a fish for them and grab your two litres and it's two litres per person and, and really enjoy them. And when you say litres, how do you actually measure that? Yeah, so it's basically a bucket and we've provided buckets out as well for pippy fishers. And so we've got two litre buckets that you can get from fisheries. Uh, just have a look at, you know, basically what a uh, your laundry bucket might look like or the one that you would buy. It's sort of about a third of the size of generally one of those. They're normally five-litre buckets, so sort of, you know, a little bit more than that. Or you can get the two-litre bucket directly from fisheries. It's two litres in shells. So if you start removing them from their shells, it's one litre if removed from the shells uh, around the rest of Victoria or in Corner Inlet. It's half a litre if removed from their shells. So half a litre de-shelled in Corner Inlet, yep, and a a litre elsewhere in Victoria. So can you find cockles in other parts of Victoria? Yeah, basically anywhere anywhere along the coast you'll find cockles and they are becoming a really sought-after delicacy and we've got fisheries along the coast for them uh, all the way from basically Portland through to Mallacoota. Corner Inlet is one of the best fisheries for them and it's got easier access to some, than some of the other parts of Victoria and so we, we have noticed a, a higher visitation rate to Corner Inlet, which is great and we do encourage it, um, but we've just made these changes to make sure that if people are making the drive there and we just want them to be able to go there and make sure they can take a few cockles home with them and that they don't arrive and that there's none there for them. That's Victorian Fisheries Authority Chief Executive Travis Dowling telling Fiona Broom about the rising popularity of cockles. And this one says, in South Australia, is a pippy 
is a cockle. Go figure. I think that's meant to say. A cockle is a pippy in South Australia? I don't know. Anyway, I'm with you. Thanks for your text. Uh, plenty of text coming in on the Supreme Court decision around the power lines. Chris says, Warwick, the bottom line for this power to get to the city was always going to be the destruction of farmers and our land. Our legal system has always been questionable. Uh, Jenny, a landholder, says, no surprise, re-Supreme Court case retransmission. Uh, courts don't always get it right. Farmers, landholders have always faced adversity bef- before we're not giving up fighting for our land and environment. Uh, Macca says, Warwick, it's just wrong. These power lines uh, are just wrong. I've driven a lot through the area. What beautiful growing farmland. It's just criminal. Uh, another text here saying, was a group misled or badly advised by a lawyer? Uh, and there are plenty of other texts coming in as long as it sounds like a movie, The Castle, about the power lines. There's another text from Macca. Although in Macca, Macca in the castle, they uh, they win. Not the uh, not the people looking for to build the infrastructure, right? Uh, which my year twelve legals studies leg, uh, teacher used to always say was wrong. Shout out to Mister Firth if you're listening as well. Plenty of decks coming in. Keep them coming. Zero four six seven eight four two seven double two. We got the weather coming up. Jeff at Pearsondale was a feature of the weather yesterday, just near sail there, because it was raining. And he said, "This wasn't forecast. Is there any more to come?" We said, "Jeff, it sounds like it's done." Well, what by I say we, us and the Weather Bureau chatting away. Jeff sends today 12.5 millimetres at Pearsondale, five after you assured me there would be no more for the day. I love that, Jeff. Thank you for sending in that text. Keep them coming. Keep the accountability coming in on the text line. Love hearing from you here on the Country Hour. We will go to the courtroom, find out what's happened with the Victorian Farmers Federation case with group calling for a spill of leadership positions there. That's to come right now, though. Let's go to William Howard, who's in the regional newsroom today for regional news headlines. Good afternoon, William. Good afternoon, Warwick. Making news. The search has resumed for a 14-year-old boy who was swept out to sea in Victoria's southwest last night. Police, the SES and Life Saving Victoria returned to Cape Bridgewater this morning to continue the search. The child was swimming with a 15-year-old boy at around 7.30pm last night when he went missing. Family violence prevention groups are calling on Victorians to check in on at-risk friends and family ahead of an expected spike in family violence over the festive period. Police responded to 358 reports of family violence on Christmas Day last year, up from a daily average of 240. Victoria's Environment Protection Authority says waste and recycling facilities that fail to address fire risks could face serious penalties. The EPA says site managers must take precautions to prevent fires, including following safe storage practices and having appropriate suppression equipment. A border food charity says many residents will continue to struggle if cost-of-living pressures aren't eased soon. The Aubrey-Wodonga Regional Food Chair has experienced a huge demand for support in the lead-up to Christmas. For more news at any time, visit abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks, William. William Howard there with Regional News Headlines. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. We've also got a chat about some pretty interesting food coming up for you on the Country Hour. And after that, you're going to meet a very impressive person at just 21 years old, running a massive piece of the agriculture supply chain. I wonder what you were doing at 21. Yeah, things are challenging and it's hard, but it's all exciting. 
Um, it gives me a good opportunity to showcase my skills. During harvest, we have around 60 people on site um, throughout the two shifts. Yeah, no, it's definitely a good work environment. All of us get along. I did not have that much responsibility at that age, and it's incredible to hear about. You'll meet that impressive young woman soon on the country. Right now, though, an impressive forecaster of weather is Lincoln Trainer at the Bureau of Meteorology. G'day, Lincoln. G'day, Warwick. How are you going? Uh, is the weather impressive for the next few days? The, the weather, oh, I'll tell you what, that, that young lady sounded amazing. Um, I don't know if it's going to be as impressive as that. We do have some nice weather for the next few days, and then the all-important Christmas forecast. So I'm going to leave you in suspense for that. Let's work up for it. Yep, okay, so today, what are we looking like? Cloudy outside my window in Shepparton, but rather sunny at the same time. Yeah, no, not not too bad today. Um, I mean, if if we kind of step back, look at the synoptics, we've got this high in the bite. High always equals good, if people think about high pressure. And that's extending a ridge over Victoria. And it's bringing southerly flow, and that southerly can be a bit unstable. But it's pretty settled today, partly cloudy over the state, pretty clear over the north of the state at the moment. Uh, and that high is going to move slowly east past south of the state over the next three days and it's largely settled uh, and mild in the south and warm in the north. Winds tend more southeasterly and temps slowly rise until Saturday. Then we have this interesting inland trough uh, and that deepens Sunday, brings some showers and slightly cooler conditions to the south. And uh, for the all-important Christmas forecast, it looks like a surface low may be developing. And that's only happened in the last two model runs. We're all freaking out uh, because it was like, where did that come from? Uh, but but uh, it's, it's, it's not the worst low we've seen. But it's, and, and we need to see how the models kind of react to that over the next few days. But I can tell you what it's telling us now and it's saying that um, it's going to be cool temperatures in the high teens in the south, mild uh, mid to high 20s in the north, uh, a chance of a storm and could be quite wet across the state on Christmas Day. Uh, so that's kind of what we're looking at at the moment. But if we if we dig a little bit deeper uh, into today, um, so, yeah, it is partly cloudy in the south, cool with temperatures in the low 20s, sunny and mild in the north with temperatures in the mid to high 20s, and there is a chance of a shower on and south of the ranges. Tomorrow, partly cloudy in the south, mild with temperatures in the low to mid 20s, sunny and warm in the north with temperatures in the high 20s and low 30s. Chances of a shower still are on and south of the ranges. Friday is probably the pick if you're looking for sunny weather. Uh, So Friday, good for Christmas parties, mostly sunny and dry throughout the state. Mild in the south, um, mid-20s, and warm in the north, low 30s. Um, And then Saturday, winds tending more south to southwesterly, getting a little cooler, partly cloudy conditions, temperatures remain Uh, mild uh, in the south and warm in the north. Could see a shower uh, in the north and the east, even a potential thunderstorm in the north on Saturday. And then Christmas Eve, cloud increasing with isolated showers across the state. Cool to mild in the south, warm in the north. Um, We could again see some showers starting to... uh, come over most of the state uh, and thunderstorms. And then Monday, really, it could be a wet one. Uh, we currently have this low developing, and that 
that could either be in the eastern or western half of Victoria. Oh, if, could, could be if, anywhere. So yeah, that's the problem with this because um, it's so far out. We're getting this high upper trough. So there's this upper feature that's going to sweep across the state Sunday. It's timed it perfectly, uh, sorry, on Monday, and that's going to activate this surface low. It's just where does it activate the low? If it does activate in the east of the state, then um, the west of the state might be saved a little bit. But if it's in the kind of western part of the state, we might have a, a warm, humid day, but quite wet. But if it's in the east of the state, it'll be cool and wet. So it's, it's not uh, not great news at the moment, but um, at the moment, looking like a feature will be over us on Christmas Day. It could be wet. Uh, and, yeah, so maybe rug up indoors and have a, a beautiful family roast. This was the year I was going to do cold Christmas meats this year, Lincoln, so thank you for, uh, for ruining that. I better change those uh, plans right now. Um, but but it is interesting, and I suppose in the sense that for anybody who would still be harvesting, it sounds like they're going to have the brakes on no matter what on Christmas Day if there's some rain around. Yes, yeah, that absolutely. I mean, we're looking at potential totals at the moment in the eastern half of the state of 20 millimetres uh, and maybe some high possibles up to 40 with some real isolated higher high possibles of up to 50 to 60 so I mean that's I probably shouldn't be telling you that but I like to share everything we have this is the current update um, but you know we could see some rain on Christmas day if the models hold to this low uh, it's only kind of because of this new upper feature that's shown itself uh, but every day we'll be updating how that's progressing uh, and you know, fingers crossed it's not too crazy and we can have a reasonable Christmas with our families with not too much rain. Yeah, certainly so and, and something to watch. And I love when you give us those figures and we can watch how the, the forecast firms up over that time, Lincoln. So always appreciated. Warnings-wise, though, uh, anything current or in the next day or two we should be keeping an eye out for? Always love that question, and the only warning at today is if you are on the bays, Port Phillip and Western Port, we do have a strong southerly for any of those yachties out there, and uh, we do have a strong wind warning, uh, marine wind warning for East Gippsland Coast. In terms of the land forecast, it is pretty good. The first time we're looking to see some storms will be on Saturday, more in the north, so largely settled until, uh, you know, Saturday and Friday is going to be a perler. We've been far too complimentary of each other during this weather cross, uh, Lincoln, so we better end it there. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Warren. Take care. <laughs> there you go. That Lincoln Trader, senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. Any rain over the summer months is welcome here. Bring it on, says Clyde. I love that. And this is the thing about rain. Outside of winter, as we know on the country hour, the rain... Uh, forecast means many different things to many different farming systems. It can be a real pain if you're producing stone fruit or you're trying to pick at the moment. Uh, it can be real disaster type territories if you're at the end of your uh, your almond season later on in, in autumn. there is Rain is really important at different times for different farming systems, which is why try and get away from the generalities of it being all good or all bad, right? But we'll try and keep an eye on it. Eight out of eight, cloud and trying to mist at uh, Pearson Dale, says Jeff again. I love your text, Jeff. And Simon at Warwick Newbill says, Hi, was I've been grain and livestock farming under major transmission lines for half a century. Very minimal impact on our operations and so, and no negative pressure on land values. We don't get paid to have them on our property. The current offer to farmers for new transmission builds uh, sounds very attractive to me, says Simon in Warwick Nabil, who sends a photo 
of his tractor and well, rather large-looking mother bin going underneath the, uh, the the transmission lines there. Thank you for sending that through to Simon. 0467-842-722 if you want to send us a text. Let's go to the courtroom again. We started there. We we're talking about transmission lines. Uh, there's also been another major uh, decision today in the courtroom surrounding the future of the Victorian Farmers Federation. We've been covering this story for a lot of this year as being the disgruntlement amongst different membership groups of the Victorian Farmers Federation. Twice groups tried to hold an extraordinary general meeting or call for an extraordinary general meeting to spill leadership positions. Twice they were rejected. This ended up in the courtroom and following along has been Angus Verley who can join us on the program now. Welcome back to the Country Hour, Angus. G'day, Warwick. The, uh, that was my brief summary of where we got to, but can you give us the, uh, an idea of, of this court case and what was being argued and who the main proponents were here? Sure, Ken Warwick, and, and there's a fair bit of detail, but I'll try and uh, keep it fairly concise. So it goes back to about the middle of the year when, let's call them disaffected members, being led by three former Grains Group presidents in Andrew Wiedemann, Brett Hosking and Ashley Fraser, They drafted and circulated a petition. Now, it it took a couple of forms and it did evolve, but the final form of it essentially had four resolutions, the first two of those calling for the sacking of Emma Germano as VFF president and the sacking of Danielle Cuccinotta as VFF vice president, and then motions three and four in their place for Paul Weller, former politician and Northern Victorian dairy farmer to be installed as president and Georgina Gubbins, livestock producer in southwest Victoria, to be installed as vice president in their place. Now, they needed to gather more than 100 signatures as per the VFF constitution for uh, for those resolutions to be put to members at an extraordinary general meeting. They did that, so they they were able to jump that hurdle, but then the VFF came back and said, on, on at the time, unspecified legal grounds that they uh, would not uh, allow that extraordinary general meeting to proceed, and that's when we headed to the court. So uh, Andrew Wiedemann and co. went to the federal court with this matter, uh, and Justice Jonathan Beach, uh, he heard both sides of the case over a couple of days in October, and since then, we've been waiting for his adjudication, and and that's what came this afternoon. What did the the judge rule? Well, in a hearing that lasted literally less than thirty seconds, he simply said that Andrew Wiedemann had failed in in all respects of his claim, so sensationally failing, really. And he went on to say that the application will be dismissed and that costs will be awarded. Uh, so we uh, this hearing only wrapped up less than 45 minutes ago, so we're yet to get our hands on the written judgment, which will have some detail to break down what that means. Uh, but we can say at this stage that there will be no extraordinary general meeting. There will be no vote on on kicking out Emma Germano and Danielle Cuccinotta. There'll be no vote on replacing them with Paul Weller and Georgina Gubbins, and the court uh, has cited... With, with the incumbents in Emma Germano and Danielle Cuccinotta. Yeah, so the Victorian Farmers Federation have, have effectively won against uh, the, the case being brought to them by the dissatisfied members saying you need to, to hold an extraordinary general meeting and spill your leadership positions. That's right, Warwick. And look, we'll, we'll find out the reasoning. There was, I sat in on the last hearing in October, there was a lot of 
uh, probing questioning from Justice Jonathan Beach about the VFF Constitution and what it, it did or didn't prof- provide for. So we can probably assume that he has deemed that the Constitution does not provide for the, well, perhaps at least for the sacking of the president and vice president and also not for nominating uh, their replacements through a, through an EGM process. And that's going to be the interesting thing to follow then from here, Angus, as you were saying, like in court, the VFF revealed that there was no mechanism to remove its president under its current constitution um, and basically saying that there was no way this group could could effectively spill for leadership positions. So does this leave dissatisfied members of the VFF with no further avenues to remove a leader? Mm, look, I did call Andrew Wiedemann earlier on to give him a, a right to respond to these court proceedings. He said at this stage, no comment, and his lawyers are reading that judgment. So I suppose we'll see whether whether him and his lawyers feel they do have any other legal avenues, but it would seem at least at this point that this is the end of the matter. Uh, Emma Germano's got a year to run, I believe, on her, on her second two-year term, so perhaps... Uh, things are on hold until there is a vote around this time next year for uh, for those leadership positions. And I should probably just quickly touch on as well, Warwick, some of the reasons, if I could uh, try and summarise why there has been this this revolt against the, the incumbents, Emma Germano and her, her offsider, Danielle Kuchinotta. Uh, uh, so I, I think there has been a feeling uh, this is coming from these members that they say that they feel Emma Germano hasn't consulted enough with the grassroots members, that the local branches and the commodity groups haven't had as much of a say in the running of the organisation as they'd like. We have seen things like uh, previously commodity groups, for example, the Grains Group, they had their own uh, commodity-specific policy offices. Some of those position, positions have been abolished. Uh, and have also, there are also some major constitutional changes that Emma Germano has has spearheaded, uh, things like uh, reducing some of the autonomy of those individual commodity groups uh, so that, for one, that they wouldn't be able to nominate their own board members at the moment, that the major commodity groups nominate their own uh, representatives to sit on the board. That would change un- under those constitutional changes. And as well, we've also seen, I'm talking here about uh, mainly Grains Group members revolting, but we've also seen, of course, as you've reported on, that a large chunk of the, the dairy farmer that membership of the VFF split away from the VFF's uh, dairy branch, the UDV, and formed their own organisation, Dairy Farmers Victoria. So talking here about uh, legal action being brought by or pursued by Andrew Wiedemann, but it's certainly not isolated uh, numbers when we talk about these uh, disaffected VFF members. Yeah, and there's, there's been board resignations, and, mm. and, and further, we could talk to each other about we this could. for a very long time, Angus. Um, I suppose, though, that and the other point that we should remark on is that the VFF's own constitutional and membership changes uh, that they've been working through now will go to a meeting in February, obviously well before Emma Germano's term as president is up. Um, and so that's probably the, ne- the next big step, I suppose, in to see who's got what support where inside the Peak Farm lobby group. Yeah, look, it will be interesting. I'm sure that some of the ABC team, will we will be there to, to bring what plays out at that meeting, but it'll certainly be interesting to see what uh, what happens then, what, what motions may be put on the table and 
what what the sentiment is is among members because it is really I'm trying to summarise sentiments here, but it is difficult uh, without any sort of vote of the overall membership base to gauge where people sit on this because we hear from people who are very critical of Emma Germano, uh, then we hear from people who think she's doing a good job, and then there's a whole bunch of people in the middle who say, well, they don't really know what, what all of this is about and they're perhaps not uh, engaged enough to, to be able to make up their minds one way or another. Well, I'm grateful for your time in trying to explain it to us as well this uh, well, this afternoon, I should say. Angus, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Warwick. Angus Verley there uh, has been watching on uh, with the Victorian Farmers Federation winning in a challenge against it today in the courtroom. Um, Justice Jonathan Beach siding with the VFF and saying Andrew Wiedemann and the group he represents failed in respect of all of their claims to force the organisation to have a spill of leadership position. 0467 842 722. If you'd like to send us a text about that. Uh, should we move away from courtrooms though? Just talk about an amazing career in agriculture. Imagine being a 21-year-old in charge of 60 employees handling hundreds of thousands of tonnes of grain at one of the busiest receival sites in the country. That's what young Western Victorian Ellie Murden, who is the site manager at Grain Corp in Nil, is doing. Angus Verley caught up with her and had a chat about how she came in to be in such a senior role at just 21. No, I got encouraged from a permanent employee at the Nil site and yeah, got me to apply online in 2021 and I loved it. So started as a harvest casual in 2021, that, that's only a couple of seasons ago. How did you go from being a harvest casual to being the, the site manager here? Yes, yeah, so it has been just a short time. I learned a lot very, very quickly and loved what I learned and just there was so much more to learn. Okay, so now as site manager, just take me through a typical day for you. What what do you fit into a day? Yeah, so every day is different and that's what I love about it. Some days it can be predictable and some days it can be quite the opposite. Are we dealing with breakdowns, quality issues, staffing and dealing with the weather conditions? And speaking of the weather, this harvest has been, well, we started off okay, didn't we, with some, some pretty good weather. I imagine you would have been uh, pretty consistent early on and then since then over the past few weeks we've had a lot of stormy sort of weather which, which I imagine has been very disruptive. Yeah no we did um, start the harvest off very very well and then every week has pretty much been a thunderstorm that's put a put a bit of a stop to harvest. How do you manage that here? How do you communicate with your your growers, what hours you're opening, whether they're shorter hours, longer hours, the regular hours, because I, I suppose that they need to know how, how long you're open for. Yeah, it's just um, keeping the communication up between the growers and myself at site. If they can get going, um, if it's not too wet, and that they will message me and they'll bring in a grower sample. We'll test if the moisture's right um, and get a bit of a scope. What's it like as a 21-year-old? I don't imagine that many of your 21-year-old friends are in the, the position of responsibility that you are where you've got, uh, well, you're responsible for handling all this grain from farmers and you've got a big uh, team of workers here that are, are looking to you for, for leadership. Yeah, things are challenging and it's hard, but it's all exciting. Um, it gives me a good opportunity to showcase my skills. How many people work here? Um, at the moment during harvest, we have around 60 people on site um, throughout the two shifts. 
60 people. Yeah. So uh, roughly 20 to 30 in the morning and then, yeah, 20 to 30 again at night time. And what's the, the work environment like? I'm imagining as much as everyone's working hard, everyone also likes to have a bit of fun to, to make the time go quicker. Yeah, no, it's definitely a good work environment. All of us get along. Uh, not too much of an age gap between us all. And just on that question of age gap, I'm sure lots of young people here working for you, but, but as well some older people. Well, what's that like having being a 21-year-old and having uh, being in charge of older people? Yeah, it can be challenging um, being 21. I've got farmers who are twice my age and workers as well that are three times my age. So have you had to um, earn, earn their respect as a younger person? Yeah, definitely have to earn the respect and put your foot down when it it needs to be. Um, But they definitely help me along the way and you learn a lot for them. How do you get on with all of the farmers? Growing up locally, I've had the opportunity to grow and make them connections. Um, And ever since, it's just keeping up the communication and them connections are just growing more and more. We're sort of mid-December at the moment, Ali. Do you reckon things are, are coming to an end now? Are things starting to quieten down a little bit or is it still still pretty busy out there? There's still a lot of grain to come into sight, back to a quiet period at the moment, but there's still a lot, a lot out there to come in. So at least another 10 busy days and we'll wrap most of it up. So that's going to take you at least a week past Christmas. You, what do you get a bit of time off over Christmas? A day at least, hopefully. Yeah, get Christmas Day off. That's it? Yeah, that's all, that's all we're aiming for at the moment. Clearly, Ali, as we've been talking about, you're working long hours, you've got lots of responsibility, lots of people looking to you for leadership, uh, lots of pressure, possibly from the, the farmers and truck drivers sometimes. But what's the, <laughs> what's the good side about it? What's rewarding? What, what do you get out of it? Yeah, so at the end of harvest, it, it's just so satisfying to see the site grow and go to its full potential, see all the work you've put in at the end of it. Um, I don't enjoy the early mornings, but the sunrises make it a lot easier. Oh, too right. 21-year-old Ellie Murden, site manager at Grain Corp in Nil in Western Victoria. You can read more about Ellie right now. Go to the ABC Rural website. And to finish today, whether you're plating up in the kitchen or out ploughing paddocks, chefs and farmers ultimately have the same goal, to make good food. One farmer from northeast Victoria has found a fruitful friendship with a Melbourne chef, not only providing produce but selling off-cut timber from his cherry trees for smoking, as Annie Brown reports. It's been a pretty bad season for northeast Victorian farmer Mark Folletta, but fortunately he's been able to branch out and find another way to make money from his cherry trees. After a devastating uh, season last year where we didn't pick a cherry at all, the season did start off quite nicely. Um, Plenty of customers eagerly awaiting the cherries and uh, unfortunately I got hit by a a pretty uh, isolated, severe uh, hail storm. So uh, that uh, knocked out about 90% of the crop. Yeah, a very sad time, but uh, I do do a few other things, so that that definitely, uh, definitely covers covers off on a few things. Among mushrooms, pumpkins, wine grapes and cherries, Mr Folletta also supplies fine dining restaurants with smoking timbers from cherry and chestnut trees. Well there's one uh, upside when you uh, get to the other end of the season and you're pruning the uh, pruning the cherries there's uh, actually an end product for it and uh, this is this is where the, the cooking timbers come in and... Uh... Um, it's not just the cherry wood though it's also chestnut wood? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. Also, I have access to it's. I believe the uh, the oldest cherry uh, uh, chestnut stand in in Australia, and it's and it's one of the highest. So it's um, up in up in Archerton. I've got a relationship with a with a with a guy up there, Doronel. He um, yeah, a quarter of the trees have died, and, and I'm helping him clean it up. And uh, and yeah, that's that's the the amazing product that is the uh, the chestnut wood. What would happen to the wood? Otherwise, if you weren't sending it to the restaurants, uh, I've had some pretty epic bonfires in the past. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, usually it gets burnt. In some cases, it's mulched, but um, for, for a lot of the time, for disease prevention, you you do remove it out of the um, out of the orchard and 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 sadly burn it. Melbourne-based chef Stephen Nairn currently cooks out of South Yarra restaurants Omnia and Yugen. However, he met Mr. Folletta while he was the executive chef of celebrated fine dining restaurant Voudemont. So it's gone about 10 plus years. The sommelier there told me that his friend potentially had wild mushrooms, pine mushrooms in particular. And then uh, in came Mark with some of those famous black crates of the highest quality of pine mushrooms I'd, I'd ever seen. And I'd, we, I had been looking for mushrooms for a long time but they were always green bruised battered had no grading system whatsoever uh, then when I tasted these I was like oh my all right this is what the the books are talking about mm-hmm. uh, and then from there um, that was it really and then Mark obviously introduced me to some of the other produce that he grows uh, then that that was it Mark became the go-to guy for all the grade A produce. We do a lot of smoking uh, in both of our restaurants. Um, sometimes we're smoking products from a raw state to fully cooked, and sometimes we may just be uh, imparting smoky flavours on top. Um, so one of their mainstays that we use is actually the cherry trees. Uh, funnily enough, obviously they're in season just now. What do you smoke exactly with these woods? Yeah, so Omnia has a signature dish. It's, it's a snack. It's called an ocean trout cigar. So the fish is cured uh, and then smoked and then bound with a little touch of creme fraiche and then it's piped into a, piece, a brick pastry uh, tube or cigar. Uh, and topped off with chives, but we we smoke a heap of different things from sweetbreads to lamb ribs to uh, pork shoulders to briskets uh, to ducks to chickens to you name it. Mr. Nairn says both the restaurants he works in use smoking as a cooking technique. The cherry and chestnut wood smoke has a delicate flavour profile. However, it doesn't exactly taste like the fruit or nut. So the cherry wood uh, has a almost slightly sweet flavour characteristic. It's actually, believe it or not, I've smoked a lot of things in Pinot Noir barrels and there is some slight characteristics. It has earthy notes, but not, not there. If you use the cherry wood to smoke beetroots, the, the, the marriage is absolutely phenomenal. The two ingredients, for, I think that there's some characteristics there. Um, but yeah, it's slightly sweet but still delicate, with little hints of earthy kind of, and I do want to say a little acidic, but in a, in a pleasant way. Mr Nairn says it's completely essential for chefs and farmers to have a close relationship, as they both share a common goal. It's critical as a chef to understand the seasons. You know, what's happening, when's it growing, is it going to be a good year? Mark is obviously on the ground, he can tell me, nah, this this isn't going to be a good year for this ingredient. 
change course you're not you know and then i will know i will go okay we're not going to have that this year so we're not going to run that that is Stephen Nan, Melbourne-based chef, speaking with rural reporter Annie Brown and making us all hungry. So I'm going to go and eat something now. Thank you for all of your texts today. Sorry we didn't get to them all. We'll try and do it better tomorrow. It's one o'clock.